The 8th of March marks International Women's Day, a day to celebrate the social, economic, cultural and political achievements of women. To celebrate this occasion at Aspie, we're excited to bring you this podcast special featuring an all-female lineup, highlighting just some of the incredible contributions women are making and have made to national security and foreign policy. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. First, we were delighted to have Tanvi Madan, Director of the India Project and Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, join Danielle Cave to discuss India and the Quad and the prospects for increased collaboration between Quad countries. My name is Danielle Cave and I'm the Deputy at ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre and we cover all things cyber tech, information and foreign interference. There's a real uptick in activity in Australia, particularly in Canberra, on both the India bilateral relationship and a growing interest in all things quad and quad related. Both are attracting high-level policy attention in Australian Parliament and across a range of department and agencies. Uh, we in my centre are also doing more and more work focused on India and the quad. And we are delighted to have Tanvi Madden, a specialist on both topics, on the podcast today joining us from Washington. Tanvi is a senior fellow and director of the India Project at the Brookings Institution. Her work explores India's role in the world and its foreign policy, focusing in particular on India's relations with China and the US. Uh, Tanvi and I have long followed each other on Twitter, and we were just talking before, and we met, we think, for the first time in Tokyo just before COVID-19 hit at a closed-door EU-US-Japan dialogue where a few of us from India and Australia were also allowed in. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Tanvi. It's good to be on the podcast, Daniel. Uh, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and let me start uh, with this one. What does the quad look like today to you in 2021 compared to where it was five years ago when it was first being revived in 2017? I think one of the one of the things that's different or at least striking is that it, um, it has survived and um, more than survived, it's thrived. I think in 2017 when it first met in November, um, this has been, it has been revived after about a decade-long hiatus, so to speak, um, and it was not clear whether it would go anywhere. Uh, and what we've seen today and where it stands today, that it has expanded in um, scope, in scale, in, in frequency. Uh, one way to think about it is that it's, it's, um, it's increased both in uh, uh, quality and quantity. And so you've seen, um, as we did uh, just a few weeks ago, the foreign ministerial. So it's been kind of upgraded to that level. But you've also seen now not just kind of the high level folks meet, but various interactions at various levels and on various issues. So I'll just mention kind of a a few. Um, You've seen kind of a tabletop counterterrorism exercise. You've seen cyber experts meet on the sidelines of conferences. You've seen some of the Quad ambassadors engage informally in different capitals around the world, including the one they announced publicly in Brussels. And then I think, you know, you have seen um, some of this kind of military, this very kind of defense-focused um, activity, including Australia um, uh, joining Malabar this year, the U.S.-India-Japan exercise, but also, for example, an anti-submarine warfare exercise with the Quad plus Canada uh, very recently as well. So you you have seen this kind of expand even in, in scope um, along with some opportunistic issues coming up. So for example, you know, COVID re- uh, recovery and response is something the Quad Plus took up with um, New Zealand 
Singapore, sorry, New Zealand, South Korea, and Vietnam joining regular discussions in the spring. Uh, and now we're, we're reportedly hearing that the Quad is talking about coordinating vaccine distribution uh, in the region as well. So I think it is very different today, and it has survived at least one government transition in the US. Um, uh, and so it's, I think it's a very different place than it was in 2017. How do you think the Quad compares in importance, and I suppose quality of activity, to other minilateral mechanisms that India is involved in? And do you see much alignment between them? I suppose I'm wondering, are all acronyms of these of these sort of minilaterals created <laughs> equally? Um, you know, one of the interesting things about the Quad itself is it is actually with, between the Quad uh, countries themselves, there are various trilaterals. So there, there's also kind of these minilaterals amongst the Quad countries that India participates in including in Australia, India and Australia's case, uh, one with Indonesia, one with France, one with Japan. And so actually Australia seems to be India's minilateral partner of choice. Um, and I think, you know, that's been something that's also changed in the last few years is those bilaterals and trilaterals have expanded, uh, the, those relationships. I think that there are a different set of minilaterals. The ones that I've just mentioned, whether it's the quad the minilaterals between them, ones that bring in France or Indonesia, these are what I would call like, you know, kind of like-minded about the Indo-Pacific broadly uh, minilaterals. I think you do have the other minilaterals that are things like the BRICS, uh, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa grouping, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or the Russia, India, China trilateral that India has. I think those are, there's less alignment on those issues. Um, those are also different for India in the sense that they involve organizations that includes China, which frankly, India has direct disputes with. Whereas these like-minded minilaterals that we mentioned earlier, you know, they might have differences, for example, the Quad countries or India, Australia, France, but they're not these kind of fundamental issues that could actually paralyze these minilaterals. And so I think what India finds groupings like the SCO and BRICS useful for is either actually a platform on which to talk to your adversaries. It's also a place that India can engage with its partner, Russia, which isn't part of these other trilaterals, but a very close partner of India nonetheless. Um, and I think India doesn't want to walk away from those many laterals because it would lead a vacuum that China would fill. So I think part of it is to be in the tent, so to speak, to hear what everybody is, is talking about. Um, and there are a range of issues that, especially around, you know, the sovereignty hawk issue where India is more of a sovereignty hawk than, say, you, the US, Japan or Australia, but, you know, more closer to Russia and um, China on some of those issues, at least, where it, it does um, uh, find those, you know, something to talk about. There is some overlap possible, I'd, I'd say, in issues like perhaps Afghanistan. Once upon a time, maritime security, at least HADR, used to be a place where you would see some overlap. Uh, you might see it again on humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, but um, in the future. But I think that the, the, you are kind of seeing essentially two groupings of many laterals in India's foreign policy. I would recommend to um, listeners, if you don't follow Tanvi on Twitter, do so. You do some great threads on all kinds of topics, and, and particularly I've seen some fantastic ones on the quad recently there's also um an article you did from brookings titled what you need to know about the quad in charts that you did in october last year that was really really helpful you looked at 
the timelines and topics. And that led me to, to my third and second last question, uh, which was clearly there's a lot of quad activity going on. Uh, which topics do you see increasingly coming to the forefront as these relationships develop? And, and personally, I'm very interested in how much topics like critical and emerging technologies or counter disinformation may or may not be feeding into and shaping quad dynamics. So I think, I think the two that I'd mention, uh, which are kind of broad baskets in which you would see would see some of this kind of work. Uh, also see some of the focus areas. I said I think one is maritime security because that mm. was really at the core of the capabilities and the core strength areas of these four countries and actually the impetus for this to form in the first place, though it's expanded. And you can fit a whole bunch of I issues under the maritime security issue. Interestingly, one of the best lists I've seen didn't come from a quad meeting, but actually the recent India-Australia-France trilateral that broke down what kind of maritime security issues could look like that like-minded countries can engage on, including things like protecting resources, capacity building in the, uh, in the region, HADR and other issues. And I think maritime domain awareness as well, uh, as countries sign all these um, information sharing agreements uh, and access agreements. So I think maritime security is one issue. I think the second is, I'd put it under a broad basket of resilience. Uh, so strengthening resi the resilience of countries in the region, their own, each other's, as well as third countries. And there I would put critical technologies in that basket. I think some of that collaboration, as you know, Daniel, we're not going to hear about because yeah. some of it will be in the def cyber defense space. But, um, you know, whether it's telecommunications, critical infrastructure, I think that very much fits in that box. Um, so does things like supply chain resilience. Uh, or ensuring, for example, um, you know, showing solidarity when a country is facing, whether it's economic coercion, uh, whether it is, you know, actual, uh, you know, coercion at, say, the border or something, that there's a way. So I would put that. So resilience and I think maritime security are the two baskets of issues that I would, I would say would be focus areas. Oh, fascinating. Last question for you. We'll take a sort of sidestep from the quad and I think focus a bit more on India. I wonder if you could spend a couple of minutes taking us through India's strategic evolution. Is the strategic outlook of India very different uh, today to the India of 10 or 20 years ago? And if we have time, um, why do you think Australia and India are finding themselves in this sort of sweeter spot in their bilateral relationship at the moment? I think if you think about it, there are two ways of thinking about it. I think in some senses, India's strategic outlook in the broad sense is actually not that dissimilar to what it was 10 years ago, in the sense that, uh, you know, you do have India facing the similar, similar external and internal challenges. It has domestic priorities that require resources. That means it cannot take on those external challenges alone. But I think what has changed is the scope of those challenges has increased. Uh, whether that is the growing gap in capabilities with China as well as China's more assertive behavior, uh, including in since 2012, this is the fourth major boundary incident that India has had since Xi Jinping has come to office, uh, but also a China-Pakistan relationship that has deepened. Um, so for India, and, and the scope of the Chinese challenges, you know, uh, is not just coming at India in the, at the boundary, but all over, whether it's in the region, whether it's in the tech space, um, whether it's in the information space. So I think the scope and scale of the challenge has increased for India. At the same time, I think for India, there is this issue of 
there has been a consistency in one part of Indian foreign policy, which is India's desire to maintain a diversified portfolio of partnerships. It used to be called non-alignment. I like to think of it as diversification. That's true to this day. And if anything, the Trump administration and India's concerns about that administration's unreliability or concerns that there was uncertainty associated with whether the U.S. would be committed to Asia, uh, whether it was willing to or um, able to, um, created a certain amount of uncertainty that I think made India double down on diversification. So it wasn't just depending on the U.S. as a partner. Uh, and this is where I actually think the, US, the Australia angle fits in to some extent. To me, the things that changed with Australia and India is that both countries realized that it was helpful to have partners other than the U.S. or other than their traditional partners. I think both countries' views of China converged for the first time in a long time. I think it was, it's been helped by the fact that Australia's view on China has stayed consistent and seems to be shared by people across parties, something that used to be a concern in India. And so I think going from, I think folks in Australia used to say, what was it, curry, commonwealth, and cricket, right? Um, <laughs> those, it's going from those things to you know, thinking about China and commerce um, and you know, supply chains and those kind of things, critical technologies. These are issues that I think are core to both countries' interests. And so to me, relationships are sustainable when two countries think, each country thinks that the other is useful to and relevant to their interests. And I think that's what's strange about Australia and India is they see each other as more attractive partners. And I think what's been crucial is that this partnership is now developing not just through the Quad, or trilaterals, but the bilateral relationship is what fundamentally underlines kind of the activity in the other spaces as well. Tanvi, thank you so much for joining us. That was um, fantastic. And I'm so glad you could join us this morning. I think it's evening for you. Um, hopefully you and I will cross paths very soon when we can travel again, whether it's Tokyo, New Delhi, Washington, or you know we'd love to host you for a visit here in Canberra. Thank you again, and, and I hope you have a great week. You too, Danielle. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Next, Lisa Sharland was joined by Jenna Allen, Research Assistant for Dr. Dean Peter Baker at UNSW's Australian Defence Force Academy. She shares some insights into her journey in building a career in defence and national security and outlines some of the work of UNSW's Women in Future Operations Group. Hi, Jenna. Welcome to the ASPE podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. No, it's great to have you on. And aside from a, a few connection difficulties, um, <laughs> you're actually up in Brisbane at the moment doing some interesting work as part of the UNSW Future Operations Research Group. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on up there? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm really lucky to get to be involved on a project um, that's being run by Dr. Dean Peter Baker from UNSW and facilitated by Professor Dave Kilcullen. And yeah, we're up here um, working with the 214 out of Brisbane, uh, looking at and wargaming actually the use of uh, autonomous uh, systems in urban warfare. That sounds That's like, cool. yeah, pretty interesting <laughs> research. So I, I thought given we're focusing a bit today on the different expertise of women working in, in national security and in defence, and I thought a good starting point for our conversation might be 
How did you get into working in this space at the moment? I mean, most people will detect you have an accent, so um, you've, you've probably had a bit of a different career story to a few people working in Canberra. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess my journey to Australia um, started when I had my first international relations professor at University of Texas um, suggested that if I wanted to work in international relations in any way that he really recommended I go to the region that I was interested on in focusing on. So um, I decided that was the Asia Pacific and then sort of started looking into ways that I could find a way to study outside the U.S. and um, in the region and found my way to to the Australian National University. So I ended up there just in the last semester of my undergrad exchange, but then with the scope to try to do a master's and figure out whether or not I, one, liked the university, two, liked Australia, and three, then liked the subject, I guess, subject matter. So all of those things turned out to be the case, and it's been six years and I've been in Canberra ever since. So um, I packed for four months and it's yeah, it's six <laughs> years down the road. But you know, I've just been, I guess the thing that I would say is I've just been really lucky to sort of get to, I've, I've kind of always managed to find a way to work myself into whatever I've found interesting. So it's kind of been a winding path, but essentially I started um, off in a Masters of Diplomacy program here and worked on a conference. Um, actually, that's how I met you, Lisa, was through working on a conference um, that was focused on more on um, security issues than I ever had been or thought I would focus on before. And that just sort of started me down a track, I guess, of um, trying to look into and, and then learn more about security, national security, and more recently, um, more focused on defense issues. No, it's a fascinating sort of journey. And I think, as, as you mentioned, we had met previously, but one of the things that uh, reconnected us was the work that you're doing with the Future Operations Research Group and some of the work that you've been doing with colleagues to found the Women in Future Operations Program. And so I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? And I guess it's really pertinent to be talking about why uh, that particular work from your viewpoint is important at present. Yeah, sure. So, um, so Future Operations Research Group um, is a group that's operating within UNSW, um, and the co-founders of that are Dean Peter Baker and David Kilcullen. And um, they started that as a research group that was focusing on sort of understanding and analyzing um, the operational environment for the military from the time frame of 2030 to 2050. And they've got a couple of different research themes emerging tech, emerging flashpoints, future of urban warfare, future of unconventional warfare, and then um, future of info warfare has recently been added. And so then I've been lucky enough to be able to work with Dr. Baker as his research assistant on this project out of Brisbane and a couple of other things. And along the way, one of the things that was proposed essentially by him was that he had some funding to focus on something to do with female participation or inclusion or support or whatever that might look like with a research grant. So I think he really like with some wisdom decided, look, instead of him as the project lead deciding what that was going to be spent on, he said, you know, would you mind putting together a steering group, a steering committee and coming up with how you think 
that money would be the most valuable, essentially. Um, so instead of me as a guy telling you, you know, or women what I think you guys should want, why don't you figure out what I should spend this money on and then essentially spend it for me? <laughs> and I think that was a really like smart move on his part. And what it started off um, was a discussion between myself, Lindsay, and Katja, the two other co-founders who we then came to Aspie and to you, Lisa, um, to build a partnership there to form this kind of new thing within Future Operations Research Group that we decided to call Women in Future Operations. And um, that conversation between myself and Kotcha and Lindsay really came about kind of like as an organic thing, I guess. But we all agreed pretty strongly and pretty quickly that there's so much work that's already and really important work that's already been and is being done that's laid a really solid foundation of female expertise in this area in national security and defense. And so our conversation became, well, you know, networking is incredibly valuable and important, but there's things that already exist in that space. Um, and so how do, you know, Aspie has its own really well-established and helpful resource in that respect. But so how do we not reinvent the wheel? How do we fill a gap that's, that doesn't exist essentially and what we thought that would be? And we've received amazing support from yourself and from Aspie and then from the wider um, sort of community as well, is how do we then kind of harvest something? How do we, one, leverage all of this expertise that comes with a unique perspective that sometimes unique perspective, I suppose, or different perspective? How do we harvest all of this expertise that's been created with all of this previous work? How do we bring it into the conversation? And how do we how do we gain knowledge from all of the different expertise that exists from women, especially out there? More broadly speaking, I think the the real push and the real philosophy behind it is this idea is twofold. One is, you know, the idea that we're experts who happen to be women, um, which I think was a line, Lisa, that you you said in a meeting one time and just really encapsulates our thinking about it. And then two, the the fundamental belief that diversity of perspective in these conversations is really important. I think that was certainly the the value in the the discussion and one of the workshops that was held last year. And and I must note for the record that that line around experts who happen to be women, I think, is something I picked up in a conversation in a similar sort of environment. And yeah. I think it's okay. I think it's a really um, important point. Often there is this conundrum, I guess, between sort of when when you engage women or there is outreach undertaken to women. Sometimes the expectation can be that it's around issues of women's security or their perspectives in mm-hmm. terms of the debate, as opposed to their expertise as a standalone entity in the national yeah. security space. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's it's not, I guess, what we would maybe say is it's not like pigeonholing where you are going to engage with women on certain issues and then leaving other issues for essentially the men only. But how do we really make sure that all of those perspectives are integrated across the entire mainstream conversation that's happening around every issue to do within national security and defense. So yeah, couldn't um, agree more, Lisa. (laughs) One of the things of value out of this discussion around women and future operations has been the importance of 
building and establishing new networks in terms of research that is taking place. Because as you've said, there are a lot of women out there who are doing research on issues that traditionally, I guess, have sort of been seen as the the masculine domain in terms of work that's been taking place. But there's actually one of the things that I took away from some of the discussions last year was the really fascinating work that is being undertaken by women in this space. And I think the more that can be done to make sure that outreach is being undertaken to to bring that work into the national security conversations that we're having, the better certainly. And I guess on a concluding note, where do you and where do your co-founders see women and future operations going in the year ahead? Uh, noting that I think last year was a very challenging one to be establishing sort of um, a, a new approach to these things with COVID and everything. It certainly meant everything was conducted online. So where do you sort of see things going next? Yeah, so I think our immediate goal is to try to finish off um, three of the uh, working groups that we have established um, in partnership with ASPE around each of the research themes of uh, future operations research group, because we see those being as uh, really important topics or themes for the time period of 2030 to 2050. So, and that those working groups are really to start that um, initial starting point of building a community and building a a discussion that's uh, focused on capturing those diverse perspectives and kind of harvesting some of that cognitive diversity that comes from getting different people in the room, different people to the table that are just normally asked the questions, right? And so that's our immediate goal. And then moving forward, what we're really trying to figure out is, all right, how do we sustain this? How do we build this into something where this continues to be integrated into the broader conversation? And frankly, to do that, it has to be resourced, right? So um, that's really where we're moving from here on out is how do we become a sustainable voice that continues to pull in people from different networks? So it doesn't become stagnant, doesn't become where we're just going to the same members, but how do we continue to pull in people from different fields that will think differently and kind of push at the edge of thinking, push the thinking forward, and maybe just come up with different answers to the questions that are being asked uh, repeatedly of the same people and getting the same answers over and over. <laughs> and and I think that's really important in terms of you made the point about diversity of views and contributing to the debate and ensuring that that's sustainable going forward. And I think that's a timely reminder that there's a lot of expertise out there and it's just a case of making sure that people are taking the time, I think, to, to go out to new networks and, and bring those voices and that expertise to the table. Absolutely. And if I can just, um, you know, make a, a final point, essentially, the driving force for me was this, of this was coming into a space where I was brand new to, to all of this sort of subject matter. And looking at the array of expertise and looking at some of the readings that I was doing as a student and going, there's all of these women, but you, you never hear from them, right? Unless you go looking for them. So it was my answer to a problem that I had wanting to learn more about the field. And that's why it's created. I think it could be valuable for people who are really trying to get at a different angle to this sort of a of a field. Fantastic. Well, I know Aspie's continuing to look forward to, to working with you on this project going forward. And um, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today, Jenna. Thanks so much, Lisa. Thanks. Finally, research intern Kwesi Nekwanyana is joined by Anastasia Kapetis, National Security Editor of The Strategist, for a conversation of the achievements of four pioneering women in journalism, Ida B. Wells, Marta Gellhorn, Oriana Falacci, and Claire Rukasel-Brown. 
Two weeks ago, a Belarusian court jailed two women journalists, Katerina Adrieva and Daria Chultseva, for two years apiece, for filming a violent dispersal of demonstrations in homage to opposition activist Romeo Bondarenko, who died a few days prior. In honour of International Women's Day, we wanted to discuss the women who pioneered and redefined journalism by explicitly denouncing repressive regimes. Joining me, I have Anastasia. And Anastasia, could you tell us just a few about a few women that you think are trailblazers? Yes, look, um, thank you for getting me on to talk about what is one of my very favourite su- subjects. I'll just list them and then we can talk a little bit more about them. One is Ida B. Wells, who was at the forefront of the civil rights movement uh, in in the late 1900s. One is Martha Gellhorn, uh, who came to fame in the Spanish Civil War. Oriana Falacci, famous for her um, interviews with uh, the world's most powerful men in the 70s and 80s. And Claire Rue Castle-Brown, who brought down the uh, regime of uh, Najib in Malaysia more recently in the one MDB scandal. Why do you think these women are trailblazers? So just starting off with Ida. So um, Ida, if you think, you know, uh, she was born in 1862 and by the time she came of age, you know, this is again the, the late 1900s in the US, a time of extra- quite, you know, extraordinary racism mm. in the post-Civil War period. So she is a journalist, she was a early feminist, she was an editor, she was a sociologist uh, and she spearheaded a national anti-lynching campaign. Mm. And she used journalism to do it. So, again, she's a, a real inspiration for so many journalists um, a- around the world who have used journalism to pursue social justice. Absolutely. Herself being a black woman during a time where her body is politicised, using journalism to kind of express her views and also just trailblaze, pave a way for other women would have been an incredible experience. Yeah, just, just extraordinary, you know, courage and intelligence. Mm-hmm. And to Martha? So Martha is, um, again, a really uh, controversial and interesting figure. She, as, as I previously mentioned, came to fame reporting the Spanish Civil War, which was a, a war against fascism. And that war drew in, you know, intellectuals and writers from all over the Western world, including people like George Orwell, who famously mm. wrote about that war, and including Hemingway. So um, she became Hemingway's wife and they broke up and he never recovered. Um, and, uh, and she was, again, an extremely charismatic figure. But she was also an innovator. So in terms of her reporting in that particular war, uh, where a lot of men were, were sitting in bars and getting, you know, secondhand sources and sort of taking it easy, uh, she went out into the field, dug deep into the countryside and got stories that no one else did. So she was incredibly good at breaking uh, news from that particular front. But she was also uh, pioneered a kind of, you know, a reportage, mm. um, the kind of journalism which takes a, a story like the Spanish Civil War but really tries to find the human story within that. Uh, and so that's what part of what she was doing when she was going out into rural areas and into the villages and, and talking to people, talking to women, talking to children mm. about their experiences is, is bringing you know, the reality of the war mm. um, into the living rooms of people who are reading her copies in London. And that kind of reporting is still very prevalent today. Yes, absolutely right. Mm. Um, in the 60s, there was something called the New Journalism, which was pioneered um, by a whole bunch of people uh, in the US. They took uh, 
inspiration from a lot of that kind of report uh, reporting, you know, in previous wars to kind of explain power and power relationships um, in, a, in a more contemporary setting. And Oriana Falasi? So Oriana Falachi is, again, a, a, another very, very charismatic figure. Um, so she was uh, really active uh, in the late 60s um, to, to the 80s. Her claim to fame, essentially, she did these incredible interviews with the most powerful men in the world. Uh, and, again, she had a controversial love life. The love of her life was um, a Greek freedom fighter uh, who died in mysterious circumstances, you know, who spent his life fighting against the regime of the colonels, as it was called in Greece, mm-hmm. uh, the military junta, um, in, the, in the late 60s and 70s. One of her most famous interviews is with the Ayatollah Khomeini, and it was famous because it took place right in between just after the the revolution in 79 and just before the US hostage crisis, which happened at the end of that year. The other reason this interview is really famous is because no one had really ever seen an interview like it. Aria Falachi spent six months preparing in minute detail for this for this interview, immersing herself in the life and times of Khomeini and the Iranian, Iranian Revolution. And then when she we, she finally got to to meet Khomeini, the interview happened over you know kind of the course of two days, and it's hard to describe it as an interview, more as you know a, a real confrontation between two incredibly strong personalities. Irina mm. Falachi spent her time pushing, pushing, pushing Khomeini on issues of democracy, of freedom, of human rights. Again, I will stress, this is just after the revolution where it was a very, very dangerous time for journalists, alone Western journalists Absolutely. in Iran. And, uh, you know, she never took a step back. Khomeini, again, got irritable, angry, threatening, and she never took a step back. And, again, at the end of that interview, she, famously, she was wearing a chowdor. Uh, she was forced to wear a chowdor when she came into Khomeini's presence. She spent the last bit of that interview talking about uh, Khomeini's attitudes towards women. Um, and you can imagine what they were. Uh, and re- really at the end, she you know, ripped off her chowdor saying she would get rid of these medieval rags. And essentially that was the end of the interview. <laughs> so I would really encourage listeners to read the whole thing, go back to the New York Times, 1979. It's called you know, Interview with the Ayatollah. It's an incredible, incredible interview. And when you compare that style of interview to the kind of, you know, 30-minute sit-downs that we have with global leaders now that don't really tell us anything about this person, this kind of interview just exposes, you know, Khomeini, to be honest, essentially his narcissism and, uh, <laughs> and his authoritarianism. It's quite extraordinary. And again, in terms of influence on journalism, this kind of interview sort of set the scene for you know, shows like 60 Minutes in the US, which in its early variant uh, was all about in-depth interviews with figures of power mm. and really pushing them um, to expose who they were and what they really thought. Mm. She grew up in Italy during fascism regime. Do you think that had an influence on a hard-hitting line of questioning, not backing down? I think that's absolutely correct. I think, you know, her parents were freedom fighters and as a child she took part in their activities. So anti-fascism was a just a complete motive for her life and her work. And I think when you have that early experience of, of living under a totalitarian or fascist system, you become a very serious person. You know what the stakes of power are. It's not theoretical for you. You know what repression looks like mm. um, and you can really see that in Oriana's work. Her work does not try to be objective. 
You know, she really sees her work as being in the vanguard uh, against repressive governments. And why now have you chosen Claire Rucastle-Brown as your final choice to discuss? <laughs> so she's the final choice of today, but she certainly isn't the final, uh, you know, person on, on this list of amazing female journalists that have uh, been speaking truth to power for the last hundred or so years. So Claire Rucastle-Brown um, was essentially uh, the woman who brought down the regime of uh, Razak Najib mm. um, in, in Malaysia. Uh, by exposing this huge scandal um, where he was essentially siphoning off billions and billions of Malaysian taxpayer money, which is kind of in their sovereign wealth investment fund, into his family's coffers. (laughs) So this extraordinary act of theft. The way that this happened again was a personal story. She was a British person who'd grown up in, um, in Sarawak, went back as an adult, uh, found that the local forest had been decimated by local oligarchs who were just kind of stripping it for profit and dispossessing local peoples. She was so angry, uh, you know, upset and ashamed. She decided she had to do something about it and set up a blog and a radio show called The Sarawak Report, which drew in a whole bunch of, you know, locals in terms mm. of... Uh, she worked with the, like, local radio station to that's right. broadcast an Indigenous language, yeah. So in a way, it was this sort of uh, community radio investigative project. But what she uncovered was a web of corruption that went all the way up to the top. Um, and then she used uh, all the kind of techniques that we now sort of consider open source intelligence to follow the money, you know, around mm. the world, including to the US, where um, her reporting uh, finally came to the attention of the New York Times. Once it was in the New York Times, the FBI took notice. And they started pursuing, um, you know, uh, this, the Malaysian government you know, underneath the Foreign and Corrupt Practices Act. And once that happened, it was kind of game over, you know, for the regime. They got voted out on a landslide, a historic landslide. Yeah, I believe previous prime minister mentioned that she caused a massive disinformation campaign against him. Devastated (laughs) is his prime reason. That's right. Look, you see see the same rhetoric from Khomeini in the Falachi interview, actually. (laughs) So when she's pressing him, like, you know, essentially, um, you know, why are you so despotic? He's saying, well, that's just, you know, a disinformation campaign. The the amount of evidence that she built up, and this has all gone through courts of law, you know, has stood up, is uncontrovertible and certainly can't be overthrown by just saying that was a, a disinformation campaign from the West. bring us the evidence it's not there Mm, absolutely well Anastasia thank you so much for our rewind in history (laughs) looking at women reporters (laughs) thank you so much Chris it's been a great pleasure that's a wrap on this podcast special we hope you enjoyed this episode and look forward to continuing to share the diverse voices and expertise of women on the podcast we'll be back with our usual episode this Friday